0: Lord God, there is no one like you. You are holy. You are set above and apart from us, your creation. You are holy other than us. And yet you have stooped down lower than anyone could imagine. And you've drawn us up to yourself. And we could never be worthy. We could never be deserving of you doing that. And so truly our whole lives and into eternity, it is right, it is fitting that we would adore you. Please help us to do that with sincerity, with consistency. I pray that what we just saying together would be true of us in our lives that You are our everything. Help us to find our everything in You because You are everything. Grip our hearts today by Your Spirit, from Your Word. May we be in awe again of all that You are. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're back in Revelation today. We, we took a break uh, last week uh, to do a, a specific focus, and I hope that God worked in your heart as we examined King Josiah and his incredible spiritual, spiritual reforms and what true rev- revival looked like for him and for the people of Judah. And, um, I hope that as we focused on repentance specifically last week, I hope that God continued to to really bring that to your attention through the week. And I hope that you have been able to experience personal renewal and revival as a result of your personal repentance. And so today, uh, we're going to go back into our our series in Revelation, What Revelation Reveals. And we've just got done looking at the, the churches, the seven churches, and examining those specific seven letters. And now our attention turns to the throne room of heaven the very throne room of heaven. And we're going to be focusing on that for two weeks. So this is part one of the throne room of heaven. And before we go there together, um, I just want to review and remind you of a little bit of context for the overall book and the overall message of Revelation. There are three main sections of Christ's revelation to John. And that's found very early on in the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, when Jesus said this to John, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. That summarizes the entire book of Revelation. The whole vision, the whole message is, is contained with those three sections. Write what you've seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And the first section or the first division, what you have seen, uh, is found in Revelation 1. Revelation 1, that's when Jesus uh, revealed his glory and John saw his glory and and he saw those golden lampstands and the Spirit moving among them and, and he saw this just amazing, incredible vision that terrified him where Jesus said, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Uh, So what you've seen, that was Revelation 1. It took up that whole chapter. Then the second division is what is. And for John, uh, that was contained and wrapped up around the seven churches. It was the the specific churches in John's day uh, that summarized really the state or the condition of the whole body of Christ, and that's in Revelation 2 and 3. So we just got done with that. That's what is. That was John's current situation. That was the, the contemporary reality for John. And then the last, but certainly not the least, division or the section to this incredible vision of, of what Christ gave John to record is what will take place after this, the things to come. And that starts in Revelation 4, where we're going to be today, and it goes all the way to Revelation 22, to the end of the book. So Revelation 4 through 22, that's what will take place after this. And after this means after right now, after these things, after the current reality, everything is going to come after that. What's to come? And Revelation 4 and 5 really are the transition point in what John sees. They're the transition point in the message, in the vision, in what John experienced and what he was to record. Uh, it's, It's kind of that That pivotal point where where the focus starts to change. Okay? So just keep that in mind uh, as a as a framework as we go forward. And as I said, we're going to be starting in chapter four today, Revelation 4, verses 1 through 8 is going to be our our key text, Revelation 4, 1 through 8. And I hope that you will look at that with me uh, in whatever Copy of God's Word you have, whether that's digital or, or the actual Bible in front of you. Let's go ahead and be there together. Revelation 4, and starting in verse 1, and John says this after this, after this, meaning after he gets the, the specific instruction and commentary on the churches, after he is to write down the specific messages to the churches and give them to those churches, after all that's happened, he said, After this, I looked and there in heaven was an open door there in heaven was an open door in john 10:9 jesus said i am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture and in john 14:6 he said i am the way the truth And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Believer. Believer in Christ. My brothers and sisters. Because of Jesus, the door of heaven will never be closed to you. Aren't you glad for that? You'll never come to Heaven by means of prayer or by means of worship or by means of closing your eyes to this reality, to this world, and finding your eyes open in the, the reality of heaven by death or by Jesus coming for us will never come to heaven in any capacity and find there a closed sign. Heaven and all that is in it, all the glories of heaven, all, all that was promised. Through every page of Scripture, it's open to you forever because of Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has made a new and living way through the the tearing or the the spreading of the curtain that is His flesh. And by means of Jesus' sacrifice, and because He is our great high priest, we have the way always open to us. Jesus saw an open door or excuse me, John saw an open door, and it's because of Jesus, and it's the same reality for you and me that are in Christ. We have an open door. John continues, and he says, the first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, and that's as this revelation started, when the first time he heard that that thunderous voice sounding like a trumpet, it's the same voice he hears again. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. After all these things, there's going to be more that's going to happen. The story isn't over. and More chapters are, are written and more is to be revealed. And so Jesus, the, the one that spoke to him at the very beginning, says again, Come up here and I, I, I want to show you. I want to continue revealing to you, John. The revelation isn't over yet. I want to continue revealing to you and, and show you what must take place. Place after this. And that, that points to the completely organized, deliberate, intentional, sovereign plan of God. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that that what happens in and around us isn't by coincidence. It's not random. It's not accidental. It's purposeful. Just as what would continue to be revealed to John was purposeful. It must take place. Jesus said. It's ordained. It's ordered. This was Jesus, glorified Savior, the risen King, the King of all kings, speaking to, as John referred to himself in his gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, speaking to him again, peeling back the curtain of time for him, and by extension, for you and me. Verse 2 tells us, John says, immediately, as soon as Jesus said, come up here, immediately, I was in the Spirit. That's in the Holy Spirit. So, uh, it seems to indicate that John stayed put physically, but the Holy Spirit supernaturally took his mind and his reason and and his spirit and took it up to heaven. Similar to what Paul experienced and writes about. Caught up to the third heaven. The abode, the, the dwelling place, the throne room of God. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The throne of heaven is not empty. It's occupied. And no matter how out of control things on earth get, and let's just be honest, things seem to be constantly and continually and increasingly out of control here, right? But no matter how out of control things get here on earth, believer, there is an eternal throne in heaven and it is always occupied. And that, my friends, that gives us great confidence, great hope, great encouragement. That gives us hope for, the, for today and hope for tomorrow and and that no matter what we are faced with, we don't need to despair, we don't need to worry, we don't need to be, to be overcome by anxiety, because there is a throne in heaven, a throne that is over all the earth, and it's always occupied. Then John describes for us something that is just astounding. And I, I use the word describe, but that's, that's pretty limited, really, because there, it, what he sees is pretty much indescribable but he does his best. Verse 3 tells us this, as he looks into the throne room of heaven, and he sees this glorious throne, and he sees glory itself occupying it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. Jasper is very similar to a diamond. It's separate from a diamond. It's, it's not the same kind of stone, but it's very similar. And so it refracts light all over the place. It's just crystal clear. And any light that gets shown on it, it just magnifies and, and shows the, that light like a prism a thousand different ways. And so here's the one seated there that has the appearance of this jasper stone just shining light, refracting it and showing it in, in all these different dazzling ways and carnelian stone. Carnelian was, was like a ruby. So it would have been bright and, and glowing and with this crimson look to it. And, and it was like the one that John saw there had that appearance, just this bright, dazzling, glorious light uh, every angle of light doing something different. And then he says, "In a rainbow, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. When I, when I think of the rainbow that must have surrounded that, I, I can't help but think of Noah and God's promise, his covenant to Noah, that says, "Never again will I destroy the earth in this way." And it reminds me and I hope it reminds you, no doubt, it reminded John, of the great faithfulness of God. That no matter what John faced, no matter what anyone faces, there is a faithful God. His faithfulness is unmatched. It's unparalleled and it's unending. It reminds me of God's rescuing nature. That His desire is to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin, from judgment. And I see the promise of all constantly restoring life the giver of life and i can't help but think john saw that and thought the same the rainbow and all that it represented all the promises all the goodness and faithfulness of god and it just surrounded this throne and then he continues what john saw verse four around the throne that rainbow surrounded throne around that were 24 thrones lesser thrones and on the throne sat 24 elders Elder there is the same word used for those that occupy the office of elder, the pastor, teacher of the church, the elder, the bishop of the church, the overseers of the church, same word. And sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. And the word for crown there is Stephanos, it's that victor's crown it was what was promised to the faithful at smyrna in revelation 2 and it's what was given to the winners of the the contests and the olympic games they were given the victor's crown the stephanos to to show that they had achieved victory they overcame their obstacles they were these elders were dressed in white and they were crowned with that victor's that overcomer's crown on their heads there's a bit of a mystery around this group, these 24 elders sitting on these 24 thrones. And there's been a lot of debate and there's lots of theories about who these people actually were. Uh, this might represent the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a very common way of interpreting that. The 12 apostles making up the 24 so that the 12 tribes of Israel represented and the 12 apostles, that's, it might be, it's possible. But it's more likely that this group represents the fully glorified, raptured church. First Chronicles 24 tells us that there were 24 individual shifts established for the priests. So everybody that was part of the priesthood, they were divided up into 24 shifts, serving times. 24 different periods of time that they were to serve. So twenty four individual shifts established for the priests. First Chronicles twenty four shows us that. And then in First Peter two nine, it tells us that every Christian is a royal priest unto God. Which means if you're in Christ, you're not just saved for your benefit, you are saved into the very priesthood of God that we together, the church, make up a, a royal nation of royal priests, where we are to do what priests do. Intercede for one another. Intercede for the world that has not yet come to Christ. Show Christ and show the glory of God to the world that so desperately needs to see His glory. And so, there's that connection here. 24 thrones, 24 elders... The overseers of the church. And I, I see this connection as the more likely one. The connection to the priesthood of every believer. And John sees them dressed in the white clothes of purity, the white clothes of righteousness, and the victor's crown, both of which are promised and given only by Jesus to those that are truly in him, to his church. That's what we see in this very Revelation, the book of Revelation, it's going to come up again that the saints, the church, are the ones given this, this white raiment representing the purity and holiness and righteousness that, that's not theirs, that's not ours, it's given to us by Jesus alone. We are only righteous because He's given us righteousness. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. And these white robes, these clothes represent that and show that. And then I already already talked to you about the crown, the victor's crown, the Stephanos. That's given to all that are are truly in in Christ, the faithful ones, His faithful ones, His body, His bride. So if, if that is the case, what an amazing statement that is to all of us that corresponds to Christ's own promise that he's not going to have his body, his bride, his dear ones, endure the great wrath of God. That they are rescued from that. And here's John seeing that on display before the great tribulation is revealed. That's coming, but right now it's the calm before the storm. It's before that happens. Chapter four and five, are that brief respite, that calm before the storm, the 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 rest before the plunge. We were at Busch Gardens this summer and had a great time. Love Busch Gardens, and at the end of our first day there, um, when it was you know just super hot, we decided we were going to go and ride the log ride. Who's who's done the log ride? And when we were there, um, apparently everybody else in the entire park had the same idea. Because every other ride we went through, no problem. But the log ride, of all rides, I mean, the log ride, honestly, it's pretty lame. I mean, it's, it's a pretty lame ride. But, I mean, it was like the whole park was there. And the reason for that, I think, is because everybody had already done all the intense, high-adrenaline rides, and everybody was soaked with sweat. Yuck, I know. And now they wanted to be just soaked with water and kind of just something that's easy and calming and relaxing. And so we stood in line and stood in line. We got on the log ride. And the log ride, uh, for those of you who've never done it and don't know what I'm talking about, um, you get in this little kind of pontoon-looking boat that's like a log and it's supposed to represent the log run of, of a timber mill and so you're in it and you're just kinda of floating along at first. It's great. It's easy. It's calming. You're looking around at the beautiful trees and and it's just like ah. and you go around and, and you're gradually getting higher. And then the last part of the ride, you go up that familiar click, 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 click track of the roller coasters. And you go in, and the doors are shut, and you know something's about to happen. And the voice comes on the intercom, hold on! And then you're shot out the flume, and so you're going down this huge hill. And so what was restful and calm is replaced for just a few seconds with adrenaline and energy and fear and a lot of intense stuff in those few moments. That's really how this transpires, this vision and how it progresses. This is the the beautiful, encouraging, refreshing, calm before a very, very intense next part of the revelation. But what John sees here, if indeed it is the the church that he's looking at, which I personally really believe that's what he's seeing. I, I believe he's seeing a representation not of the patriarchs of Israel combined with the apostles, and there's reasons for that, which I won't go into right now. Feel free to Uh, ask me about that sometime, but I really think that the representation here is the redeemed, reconciled, rescued, raptured church. They're already receiving their robes of righteousness, their victor's crown, and what what a a, a source of hope that would be for John. And what a source of hope I I hope (laughs) that is for you as well. Verse 5, let's jump back in the text together. As he continues looking at this incredible display, he sees what we sang about just a few moments ago. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And that's literally the sevenfold spirit. This is referring to the Holy Spirit, just like in Revelation 1, at the beginning of the vision, when Jesus Jesus showed John the sevenfold Spirit of God roaming and and moving around the seven golden lampstands with the church. So the sevenfold Spirit of God is seen here. In verse 6, something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, and imagine that. Imagine the glory of of God with all of his brilliance that John tried to capture here and record that, that unimaginable light and splendor and beauty along with the lightning and the thunder all reflecting on this great sea of glass i mean what an astounding scene that would be right similar to crystal was also before the throne and four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side the first living creature was like a lion doesn't mean he was a lion. It's it's trying to find some sort of similarity and connection with what he saw, and that's the best he could describe. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Weird, I know. But it wouldn't have been as weird to John, no doubt, as just magnificent. Verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings, and they were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. In other words, eternal. And this this threefold use of the word holy, there's a couple things going on there. One, In Jewish culture and in Jewish custom, when you said something three times, it was established as unchangeable fact. It was absolutely establishing something as being completely true and forever true. The other aspect of this, no doubt, refers to the triune God, the three in one. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy. And all three members of the Trinity are equally holy and equally astounding and majestic and worthy of honor and glory and praise and adoration and surrender forever and ever. Church, what John saw and what he tried to describe is truly indescribable. It's astounding because the one he saw is astounding. This God that John is is trying to describe that he saw, this God that you have come to know if you know Jesus Christ, He is astounding. He is beyond all comprehension. And you and I need to be filled constantly with a fresh sense of awe at who this is that we are privileged to to have dealings with. But He, being so high and exalted and unfathomable, would stoop down as low as He did and draw us to Himself. A very, very similar scene was revealed hundreds of years earlier to the prophet Isaiah. What John saw was not unique to him. And the prophet Isaiah saw something almost identical. And in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, I, I just want to draw your attention there. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, I want just briefly to touch on what Isaiah saw as he saw the throne room of God as well. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. In verse 1, Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died. And right there, we know that that meant the time in which Isaiah was writing this, the time that he saw this vision that he's going to describe, was a time of upheaval, chaos, despair, uncertainty, instability, anxiety, and fear among his people. Because Uzziah was a great king. And he was a well-loved king, and he brought about great, great economic stability. He brought about spiritual reform. There was peace in the land. There were no enemies that they had to deal with. Things were good. Life was good under Uzziah. And it was somewhat sudden that he became gravely, terminally ill, and then died. And then all of a sudden, they were left without a king. They were left without their source of stability and security. What are we going to do? What's going to happen to us now? What's coming our way? Sound familiar? 2020? 2021? But in that circumstance, in that situation, look at what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon "...a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings." Sound familiar? Should. We just read it in Revelation 4. "...each had six wings. With two he covered his face, because though the seraphim were holy angels, they knew that their holiness didn't compare to the holiness of God. And and even though they were holy they could not stand to look at the holiness and the brightness of the majesty of their Creator. With two, He covered His face. With two, He covered His feet because the feet are less than desirable. They're the uncomely parts. They didn't want anything undignified in the presence of God. With two, He covered His feet. And with two, He flew, which shows us that that these great angels, these seraphim, were ready and willing to, to go at a moment's notice and do whatever God had them to do. They were ready to do God's will. They were on mission all the time. So with two of the wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Sound familiar again? See, the reason I drew your attention there, the reason I wanted to focus on that is because you see, you see on earth centuries of history that have gone by. You see, you see a timeline that's removed from one another by centuries. Isaiah to John. Lots happened on earth. Lots of change. Lots of things coming and going. Some good, some bad. Lots of different world leaders coming to the stage and then leaving. Un. Certainty and instability all through history so much change so much anxiety all throughout those centuries but in heaven the scene remains the same that there's still a throne it's still occupied isaiah saw it john saw it also ezekiel saw the same kind of vision In Ezekiel chapter 1, he sees the almost word-for-word identical vision as what John saw with the rainbow surrounding the throne and everything. And he saw the same seraphim attending that throne, saying, holy, holy, holy. So, church, here's what I want you to understand. No matter how dark our world gets, it will never dim God's glory. Isaiah's world got really dark. Ezekiel's world got really dark. There was judgment and invasion and captivity and exile. John was exiled on the island of Patmos. He was the last living apostle. Persecution was sweeping the empire. Dark circumstance, a dark world. But no matter how dark John's world got, or Isaiah's world got, or Ezekiel's world got, or how no matter how dark your world gets, it will never dim God's glory. And that's where our focus needs to be. That's where our perspective needs to be. On His glory. And, and focused on living our lives for His glory. The other thing I want you to see, and the reason I, I combined the Isaiah 6 passage with Revelation 4, is because, similar to what I just said, difficult circumstances which we all face, we all have, we're all going to have, difficult circumstances will never dethrone God. No matter how difficult our circumstances might be or get, they'll never dethrone God. God will never look at a set of circumstances and say, oh, that's too hard for me to handle now. I guess I better leave the throne and give it to someone else. It's never going to happen. No matter how much things change, no matter how evil conditions become, no matter what Satan attempts, nothing, nothing will ever be able to remove God from His throne. And that should fill you with more hope than anything else. More encouragement, more confidence. And last these combined visions, the throne room that John saw, which was the same as what Isaiah saw. It teaches us that life is always changing, but God never does. Your life has changed this past year and a half. Mine has too. No doubt our lives will continue to change because that's what life does It changes constantly. Circumstances change constantly. And no matter what is unstable in all the universe, there is one source of constant, perfect, eternal stability in and over the universe, and that is our great God. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You for Your Word I thank you for what it shows us, what it reminds us of, what it teaches us. And I thank you that you, God, are never changing. You are always the same, and you are the only one who always is. I thank you for your holiness. May your holiness astound us. May your holiness drive us to greater devotion to you. May we be in awe of you and of your majesty and of your glory The way John was, the way Isaiah was, and may it fill our hearts with the same sense of courage and peace and hope that no doubt it did for Isaiah and for John and anyone else who ever saw what they saw Paul, Ezekiel. May it give us the confidence we need in you, the unchanging one, and may it also drive us to live our lives. In greater measure for you and for your glory. Help us with this, I pray, as we go out into the real world and the real life and all the unchanging, or excuse me, all the all the changing circumstances that we face out there. Guide us, fill us, remind us with this same awesome truth that we we heard and read together today. Thank you for who you are. We praise you together, in Jesus' name, amen.